All right, turn your Bible to Mark chapter 1. It can be found on page 836 in the Pew Bible. Mark 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. It's on page 836 in the Pew Bible. Mark 1, 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see who Jesus is in your word. That it might lead us to love him and to trust him. In Jesus' name, amen. So there we were was several high schoolers at Impact this last weekend, right? So we were gone last week. We were with the high school students at Impact in Coralville, Iowa. And one night during our free time, we, we decided to sign up for an escape room. Are you familiar with escape rooms? Let me explain what an escape room is. An escape room is a 60-minute real-life adventure game. I think ours was 30 minutes. Was that right? 30 minutes? 30-minute adventure game. You and your team assembled in a themed room, and you have a certain amount of time to complete your mission and escape the room. A successful escape requires you to find hidden clues and solve various puzzles throughout the room. Everywhere you look is a potential clue to get out of the escape room or a riddle that needs to be solved. The clock starts ticking as soon as you enter the room. Well, we stood outside this room and a man was there and he he was explaining the rules and and what we have to do. I don't remember. I think it was 30 minutes. He was giving us 30 minutes once we go into this room to figure out how to escape the room. Well, for me, I had never done this before. I was lost. I was confused. And then what you do is so you you enter this room with your group and you start, you're you're supposed to look for various items, okay? So so as we, we rush into the room, I start seeing people turning over chairs, tossing chairs, eating chips, 
shaking bottles. I was a little confused. I was like, what is this? It was crazy. I'm looking around. I'm, I'm so uncertain of what we are actually supposed to do. I said to my wife, I said, Beck, what are we doing? She looked at me and said, I, I don't know. <laughs> so I told her, let's just, let's just turn things over. Let's just turn them over. Make it look like we're actually doing something of, of value. Until it was about, for me, about midway through, and I start to figure out that this is a real, a giant, real-life puzzle, right? Some sort of mystery that needed to get solved for us to get out. Well, they, they already told me that, but I just, it takes me a while to, to get things figured out. So the rest of the group was, was well on their way of solving these various clues, and then those clues led to more clues, those clues led to more clues, and as more information was being revealed to us until you finally cracked the code and, and escaped the room. Well, we didn't escape the room. Sorry, your time's up. So it, it, this reminded me of a real-life puzzle, an action puzzle, so to speak, where you don't have the box, right? You don't have the box. You don't know what you're supposed to do or what it's supposed to look like at the end. And here you are, you're like a detective putting the data together until you can solve the mystery. In a similar way, we'll be spending the next several months or this year in Mark's gospel, which is structured similar to putting puzzle pieces together with more and more clues revealed over time and, and through the pages, which help us ultimately discover who Jesus is. Those in the story, they don't have all the information that we, that we have. And so we'll see this as we go. There, even even though, although we're clued in from the beginning, we're going to see this as we go. They don't have the information. They're trying to put it together. Who is this? Who is this man? We're clued in from the beginning. So I hope, I hope this morning then to do some, some introductory work while also unpacking these first 13 verses. Now, although this, this sermon this morning, it might not have as much application as normal, my hope is that it would lead to a greater understanding of who Jesus is and what the Bible is saying about Jesus so that we might trust in him and love him more. Hey, that, that's my goal. That's my hope for us this morning. So first, you can see this in your outline, the identity of Jesus. With this point, what I want to do is unpack the, the structure of the book so we get a glimpse of how it's unfolding because I want to make sure we read the various passages in light of their entire context of this larger work. If you notice how this gospel begins, you, you realize that this isn't a simple biography of the life of Jesus written by Mark. Because you notice he doesn't begin with the Christmas story like other gospels. In fact, he picks up the story when Jesus is about 30 years old and, and he focuses on the last three and a half years or so of Jesus' life. He moves at a, a fast, quick pace through this book, focusing on Jesus' actions more so than on Jesus' words. Now, we might wish that we had stories of what Jesus was like as a toddler, right? How, how did he obey his parents? What, what did that look like? We might wish we had stories of him being a junior high student, 
right? Or a high school student, right? More detail on those events, but we don't. We don't have those. Instead, the gospel writers are are focusing on various aspects of Jesus' life and ministry in which all of them, so this is what's unique about this, all of them climax at Jesus' death and resurrection, right? So the the birth account is missing, but none of them are missing the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, What we have in the Gospels are are various snapshots of Jesus, with each book structured in a certain way so that we might know Christ better. Okay, so I I was explaining this to to my my kids uh, yesterday. I don't know. We were talking about an injury of a a basketball player. I told you that some of you guys maybe remember this story from 2014. Um, we We were living in Louisville at the time. And I was telling my kids this yesterday. We're living in Louisville at the time, and this uh, college basketball player named Kevin Ware, he, uh, he was playing in the March Madness Tournament. Okay, do you guys recall this? Maybe you're familiar with the story. He's, uh, he plays for Louis- University of Louisville. We're living in Louisville at the time. All right? They're playing Duke, the Duke Blue Devils, in order to get to the Final Four, right? And then win the national championship, which I think they ultimately did. Um, and so, so what you have happening in that, the be- very beginning of, the sto- of, of that account of this game, in the first quarter, he goes up to block a three-point shot, right? So he, he leaps to, find a, to block a three-point shot. And do you know what happens? His leg snaps when he lands. Just snapped. And he's falling on, the, he's down on the ground. And... And when you watched on TV, so we were living there at the time, watching on TV. When you watch this on TV, you, what you see are the, different, are the reactions of the players, right? Some of them turn away. Some of them fall, literally fall to the ground, stunned in disbelief of what just happened. We had friends there at the time that were in the stands. They said, you couldn't, it was silence, complete silence in the room. The whole stadium, just like a gasp. (gasps) What the gospel writers are doing when they write their gospels is they're looking at it from different angles. It would be like the coach seeing that event, and he sees that event, right? And he details what just happened, right? Or, Or what it's like is an eyewitness observer from let's say from the television stand, right? So they're, they're, in, they're on the, watching from the TV and they're going to walk through the events that led to that situation, right? But they're all highlighting what happened in that one event from their perspective. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are doing, all right? So with that being said, as we begin the gospel of Mark this morning, there are several themes that we'll draw out. What is Mark actually doing? And they're all tied to revealing the identity of Jesus. And I've titled this sermon series, The Gospel of Mark, Who is This Man? Because that's the focus of the book. We get a behind-the-scenes view in this opening section that reveals to us from the very beginning who Jesus is in which most of the people around Jesus at that time were actually blind to see it. 
comes as a surprise to them. Jesus' identity, identity is going to slowly be revealed over time to them. The Pharisees, the world, and the disciples themselves are all blind to see it. They didn't have the puzzle pieces put together for them. They didn't, they didn't get to see the box like we do, the cover. So from the outset, we read in verse 1, and here it is. In a sense, it serves not only as a title for the introduction of this book, but also as, as a title for the whole book. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The identity of Jesus is stated by Mark. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. The one upon whom Israel's and the world's hope ultimately rests. Jesus is this this coming king. This Davidic king which they were looking forward to. He is God's son who would rule and reign forever. That's the Jesus. That's the good news that he is going to proclaim. And that's what Mark clues us in on. So, so here's the structure. There's several possible ways we could look at it. All right. It could be observed that this story of Mark's gospel is a drama in three acts. Okay. A drama in three acts centered, centered, around, centered around who Jesus is consists of three main stages. It focuses on three geographical locations. In and around Galilee. So in and around Galilee, on the way to Jerusalem, and then in Jerusalem. All right? Introduction is given in 1, 1 through 13. Act 1 takes place in Galilee. Chapter 1, 14 through 8, 21 or 26. So Act 1 is in Galilee. 114 to 821 or 26. Act 2, on the way to Jerusalem. On the way. 822 or 26, 27 to 1052, to the end of chapter 10. And then Act 3, taking place in Jerusalem. Chapters 11 through 16, 8. Now, it might not be that neat. All right. But I think that's helpful. I think it can be helpful at least to to see the flow of the story geographically as it works through these different places and it answers the question, who is Jesus? At the end of these sections, we, we see who is Jesus? Who is this? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God? We we could at least say it's divided up into two halves. Okay, so it's either three Dramas, three acts in a drama, or three, two halves. The first half reveals, biblically, theologically, the authority of Jesus as the Christ. 1, 1, 1 14 to, to 8, 26. And then the second half reveals Jesus as the suffering Son of God. So Jesus' authority as the Christ, and then Jesus as the suffering Son of God in 8, 27 to 16.8. That's the overall structure. At key points in this story, we see these themes of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. In Mark 1.1, which we've already read, Mark declares that this is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism in 1.11, the heavens are torn open and God declares, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. 
And then at various points in the story, the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. In chapter 9, at the transfiguration, there's a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then at the cross, as a bookend to this gospel, the curtain was torn in two. Now think about this. At the baptism of Jesus, the heavens are torn open. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. At the end of the gospel in 15, the curtain is torn in two. And a Gentile, this centurion, this Roman, truly, this man was the son of God. Throughout, throughout, questions will be asked, who then is this? What is this? A new teaching with authority? Why does this man speak like this? Jesus will ask, who do people say that I am? Who do you say I am? And that's the question that we'll be confronted with. Who do you say Jesus is? Is Because how you view Jesus impacts how you live your life. How you view Jesus and who he is impacts what you do in your day-to-day life. The identity of Jesus will be revealed over time, but it's declared from the beginning. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This will be revealed fully through a through his life as a servant, through his suffering and sacrificial death on a cross, through his triumphant resurrection. We have the privilege of seeing the puzzle piece put together, the puzzle put together for us. With that being said, let's let's dive in a little more detail here, dive into the story. The forerunner of Jesus. So look with me now at at verses 2 through 8. 2 through 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right away, we're introduced to this quotation from Isaiah, which actually consists of several passages in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, we read this. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then in Malachi, which we studied this past fall, we we came to a prophecy in Malachi 3.1, which is alluded to here in Mark. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And that's what we see here. 
400 years after the prophecy given to Malachi, our attention is now drawn to this messenger, this one who will prepare the way of the Lord, this Elijah-like figure who prepares the way for the coming of God. The goal and task of the messenger is to, to get the people ready for the coming king, to get them ready for the Lord himself. Mark clues us in on who he's referring to. John the Baptist is the messenger. He is the voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. In the Bible, the wilderness isn't just a random geographical location. Rather, it was the place of God's deliverance of his people in the Exodus. It was the place where God met with his people revealed himself to them, tested them, and protected them. In fact, the the prophets predicted a new exodus, beginning in the wilderness, which stirred the hopes of the people that God was coming in salvation and judgment. Now, John arrives in the wilderness. God is keeping his promises He is bringing to pass that which he has promised. God is faithful to his word. John is preparing for the Lord, the way of the Lord. And this involved baptism and repentance. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He called people to repentance. To repent means to change direction, right? To go from one direction to turn away from something and turn around and go the other direction. I think sometimes we view repentance as merely saying sorry or acknowledging that we've done something wrong, no cha- but no change ever takes place. We, we have good intentions, but what we need is a, is a change of direction, Imagine driving down the road, and this isn't hard to imagine this time of year, in the midst of an ice storm or a blizzard of some sort. Okay, you're driving down the road in this storm, and then you say to yourself, I shouldn't be doing this. What am I thinking? I I feel bad for going this way. This is terrible. If I go any further, something worse is going to happen to me. There's going to be consequences if I continue down this path and in this storm. It might have bad consequences on others. You're thinking all this. I shouldn't do this. I'm sorry that I'm doing this. And then you keep driving. Good intentions That's not repentance. Repentance would involve actually turning around and going the other direction. It's just, it's not just some some feeling that you might have for a moment. Oh, I'm sorry I did this. Rather, it, it is an act of the will in which our mind changes. We change our mind about something, agreeing with God on it, and then deciding to turn around and go the other way. Turn to Him. What is it for you which you need to repent of? Is there something in your life that is preventing you from being prepared for the coming of the Lord? Right? Christians, 
ongoing repentance should characterize us as followers of Jesus. The text goes on in verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now get the picture. They took action. All are coming out to him in the wilderness to be baptized by him in the river Jordan. From Judea and from Jerusalem, Jews believed at that time that only Gentiles who were converting to Judaism and those who were defiled needed to be immersed to cleanse themselves from impurities. For a great number of Israel to go out to John to be baptized by him is quite remarkable. Because in a sense they're saying, I need cleansing spiritually. I need a new beginning. I'm the one that's impure and defiled. Baptism was an outward sign of the inward repentance and change that has taken place, had taken place. It was a symbol of repentance and an outward sign then of belonging to God. So John proclaims a baptism of repentance. And then Mark describes John's appearance. You're probably thinking, what is that in there? Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. What? The description here points us to John as the Elijah who was to come. He is a prophet dressed like Elijah. 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah wore a garment of hair with a leather belt about his waist. The audience, in, in hearing John's clothing, would have made the connection between him and Elijah, just as we do this in our own day, don't we? When people dress like characters from the past, even if not intentionally, illusions are picked up on, right? If you, if you were to see me with, well, I'm not this, but uh, if, if you were to see me with, with glasses on, right, maybe you don't know this. If you were to see me with glasses on, right, and then I do this, and I act like I'm going to rip open my shirt, who am I? Superman. Superman. Now, he's not a real character, but you get the idea, right? The, the illusion is there, as though I'm saying I'm him in a sense, right? There's, a, there's an imagery there. I'm not him, exactly. <laughs> not even close. I'm real. He wasn't real. Anyway, John proclaims a message which declares the superiority of the one coming after him. John considers himself unworthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. To, to remove one's sandals was a task performed only for a slave. The one coming after John is, is so powerful he, in what he is going to accomplish as he carries out God's will that John views himself as a slave not worthy to untie his shoes. Just a quick word of application. Do you see what John is doing here? John acts as a mirror. 
deflecting all attention away from himself to Jesus. The one coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy of him. Our lives should then focus not on our own promotion or self-advancement or importance, but on Jesus. That's the application for us. Let's focus our attention ultimately on, on Jesus. John would perform water baptism, this outward symbol, but Jesus would come and baptize with the Spirit. He was coming to, to spiritually cleanse and transform people so that we would be in a right relationship with God. Jesus would usher in the new covenant, pour out his spirit on the new covenant community and enable them to walk in the ways of the Lord. So the stage is now set. The focus now shifts from all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem going out to the wilderness to be baptized by John and then this proclamation of this mighty warrior coming to now verse 9. The baptism and temptation of Jesus. So look with me quickly at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. From those in Judea, in all Jerusalem to now, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Not what you would expect. A small, obscure town or village, never mentioned in the Old Testament, perhaps the size of Glidden, comes the one who is mightier than John. They wouldn't have expected this. The emphasis as we look at this section is not on the baptism of Jesus. That's not the focus. No explanation in, in Mark's gospel is given for why Jesus came to be baptized. There's no interaction with John and Jesus mentioned here. Although we do learn from the other gospel writers that in his baptism, all right, Jesus never sinned. He, what he's doing is he's identifying with the people. And he's doing it to fulfill all righteousness. The emphasis in Mark is on what is stated in verses 10 and 11. He came up out of the water and immediately, we're going to see this word immediately about 35 times in this gospel. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. There's a, a tearing open of the heavens, a descent of the Spirit, and a proclamation by God in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. To be called God's son highlights not only that Jesus is a greater Adam, and a greater Israel, but the phrase my son is also a title for the Davidic king, the king coming from David. From the outset, Jesus is declared to be God's son. And then immediately after this, what happens? He's called God's son. God is pleased with him. Then what? It doesn't lead to a great, temptation-free, easy, prosperous life. Does it? No. No. He's led 
to the wilderness. Right? God is pleased with Jesus. All right, now go into the wilderness to be tested and tempted. Oh yeah, and there's wild animals there. Danger. Following his baptism and declaration from heaven, the Spirit leads him to the wilderness. It is in the wilderness where Jesus spends 40 days being tempted by Satan. It's a period of testing. We know from the Old Testament that in the wilderness, this was the place of testing for God's people, for Israel. They wandered in the wilderness for how many years? 40. 40. 40 years, 40 days after being delivered out of Egypt and prior to their entrance into the promised land. And they continually failed in their time of testing. Unlike Adam, who failed in a perfect world in, in the Garden of Eden, when tempted by Satan, and unlike Israel, who failed in their wilderness wanderings for 40 years, Jesus obeys perfectly. Mark's purpose is not necessarily to compare Jesus' temptation to our own. But ultimately, at the beginning of his ministry, Mark is confirming that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ who will defeat Satan and accomplish his mission in bringing salvation for all those who would trust in him as their Lord and Savior. Sometimes, we're concluding with this, Sometimes what we need to hear is not, what are we supposed to do? Get me on that treadmill. What are we supposed to do? What action am I supposed to take? Sometimes what we need to hear is who is Jesus and what he did. Where Israel failed, where you and I fail, Jesus succeeds. May the Lord give us eyes to see his greatness and worth. So as we prepare for our study in Mark, might it lead us to a greater love for Jesus this year? Might it enable us to know Jesus better and call us to worship him and him alone? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. You have revealed yourself to us through your word in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have given us your word so that we might grow in godliness. You have given us every, everything we need for life and godliness. And so we do pray this morning that you would, even this coming week, as we repent of our own sins, as we confess them to you, that we would turn away from our sins and we would turn to Jesus and worship him and focus our attention on him. He is worthy of all of our worship. It's in his name we pray. Amen.